Welcome to the Advanced Lacrosse Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Rotelli. Today we're joined by the guy who taught me everything I know about lacrosse and one of the greatest coaches of all time, Dom Starja. Here's a quick background on Coach Starja. He was a defenseman at Brown from 1970 to 1974, where he was an All-American and first-team All-Ivy player, played for the U.S. national team in 1978, was the the head coach at Brown from 1982 to 1992, the head coach at UVA from 1993 to 2016, has won four national championships, is in the National Lacrosse Hall of Fame was three-time NCAA Division I Coach of the Year, and has recently been named as the head coach in the new PLL for the 2019 season. Dom, thanks for coming on the show. How are you today? I'm doing great, Chris. Always a pleasure to catch up, uh, and you're, you're very kind in your, in your introduction. Well, you've done a lot of great things, and it is great to talk to you. So um, I like to kick off the show uh, asking you, how did you first get started in the game of lacrosse? Uh, yeah, I grew up in New York, uh, you know, on Long Island, uh, but strangely enough, I'd never seen lacrosse uh, till I went off to college. Uh, I had heard of it when I arrived at Brown in the fall of 1970. I was a football recruit in the days when you had to play on freshman teams in your first year. I happened to be the captain of that freshman football team that year, and a buddy on the football team played lacrosse and and said, why don't you come out for lacrosse? And frankly, at Brown in those days, you know, I felt a little intimidated academically and maybe socially and was most comfortable around the locker room anyway. And uh, so uh, having heard of the game, even though I'd never seen it, uh, I was curious. And so I thought to myself, OK, I'll give this a try and see how it goes. And, uh, I, you know, to be honest, uh, it's almost like I'm making this up, but I immediately fell in love with the game, you know, almost to the extent that uh, – I feel like, you know, the first time I picked up a lacrosse stick was almost like, uh, Jesus, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And uh, so I played two more years of varsity football, but I w- it was a, uh, lacrosse was an immediate distraction. And, uh, you know, I would be banging a ball off the wall before football practice. The football coaches were not happy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I just fell in love with the game. And I happened to – I was a history major in college, and uh, my closest friend uh, as an undergraduate was a Mohawk Indian who was – one of the best players on the lacrosse team, uh, David White, and lived on a reservation in upstate New York. And so the whole lacrosse stick and the Native American background of the game and, you know, uh, even in football, even though I was a bigger guy, uh, you know, it wasn't the contact that attracted me to football. It was catching the ball and running with the ball. And, and uh, you know, in lacrosse, you can just do that, you know, sort of whenever you whenever you want or whenever you can. And uh, so the, it just kind of came together for me. I fell in love with it and just uh, – you know, it was a labor of love right from the beginning. I worked hard at it. I wanted to be known quickly. I wanted to be known for uh, for being more than just an athlete, and so I worked really hard. and um, And it just kind of it just kind of went from there. You know, having started late the way I did, I probably was the better lacrosse player after I, I continued to improve after college. I played about ten years of club lacrosse. Like you said, I played on the national team in '78, and a lot of you know a really good club lacrosse in those days, and. And, uh, and that's, it kind of, it kind of went from there. And, uh, you know, when I graduated, I was, I was certified to teach. I thought I might be, at, uh, in education. I probably would have been a teacher had I not gone into coaching, but, the the uh, head lacrosse coach at the time at Brown, Cliff Stevenson, uh, asked me to come back and be his assistant. So I started coaching. I was the first assistant, uh, that, you know, sort of the day I graduated, uh, 
in a sport in which I really had only been playing for three or four years. And then I, but ironically, I also became the first assistant in soccer and literally had never kicked a soccer ball until the first day I was coaching it. And, uh, <laughs> so I, you know, went off to college to be a football player and graduated as a soccer and lacrosse coach. And, you know, uh, heard a lot of talk about, you know, people saying to me and my dad, especially when are you going to get a real job and people telling me that I, you know, I'm supposed to be doing something else. And, uh, and, uh, but I, you know, I, I came to realize that I, you know, I love the, locker room the atmosphere in a locker room uh you know over a boardroom and uh so it didn't take me long to to know that i was doing what i was supposed to be doing and was very happy doing it and uh and so when i'm talking to young players now uh which i do a lot of these days uh um, when i stand i just stand up in front of them and say okay i'm the clearest example of anything is possible and you never know you know just mm -hmm. the fact that i happen to be here you know those accolades that you talked about in the introduction and stuff uh, it all began uh you know, by a naive, dumbstruck uh, freshman in college being talked into playing the game. <laughs> now, when you, when you started coaching right after Brown, do you remember the moment you decided, you know, this is it, I just, I want to be a coach? And w what is it that you love so much about coaching? Yeah, I don't know that there was a single moment that way, except that uh, a couple of years in, you know, again, I was the first of my family to go off to college, uh, first generation college student, mom and dad side of the family, all the relatives and all. I was the first to do that. So it was it was it was new territory for us. I uh, went to an Ivy League school again, listening to my dad say to me, when are you going to get a real job? People saying Ivy League guys don't stay in coaching. I applied to business schools uh, two or three years after I started coaching, uh, figuring, you know, uh, listening to people say these things and figuring, okay, I guess I'm supposed to be doing something else. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, a true story, I applied to uh, Virginia and Carolina. I got into both schools, uh, thought I'd go down and watch ACC sports for a couple of years and go to business school. Uh, but the thought of actually doing that, going through the exercise of considering closely the, you know, going to business school and the business world, finance, things like that, uh, you know, helped me to come to terms with the fact, you know, when I was, uh, you know, deciding whether or not to send in my deposit and take advantage of this great opportunity in graduate school, I just decided, uh, you know, I just said, you know, I really don't want to do that. You know, uh, <laughs> I'd been coaching for a couple of years and I realized that I loved what I was doing. And, and so I think the exercise of going, of doing that uh, helped me to come to terms with uh, with the fact that uh, you know maybe I you know I'd gotten together with my wife with uh, with Chrissy and uh, she was going to go to med school she decided to go to nursing school instead so she went to nursing school got her RN I decided to stay in coaching and that's the life that we built together and uh, um, but uh, like I say I think the thought of business school, med school, law school, that whole kind of professional thing. Uh, I, I wrestled with that. And I think it helped me to, to come to terms with the fact that, wait, I, this is what I enjoy doing. Maybe I can do this, you know? Uh, I love so, it. Well, yeah, you, I, I probably, I imagined, I always imagined that I would be an administrator yeah. someday, you know, uh, would have been an athletic director, gone into athletic administration at some point. And that's, you know, a little further down the road, that's when I began to realize, you know, I think I'm suited to the locker room. I yeah. mean, I think that, that, I mean, that's where I'm the most, most comfortable. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and so it kind of grew from there. So you, you've really been coaching since 1975. Um, how is the game different today from when you first started coaching? Um, probably the, 
physical development of the players as much as anything else. I mean, clearly the, the single thing, I started with using a wood stick and it was my sophomore year when we switched over to plastic. You know, that was a huge change. Uh, it changed everybody's stick work. Uh, it was much easier to be a good stick handler with uh, with the uniformity of plastic and the lightness of a plastic stick and all. And uh, so everybody's stick work got a little better, a little bit cleaner when we all switched over to plastic. Uh you know, but it also felt like in the old day, you know, we didn't have weight rooms. Uh, there was no out of season training uh, in those days. Uh, you know, a lot of us played, I played football and lacrosse for three years. A lot more guys did it in those days. Uh, you know, so, uh, so we would have, you know, 10 or 12 guys. On my, I think of those Brown teams that were good athletes, uh, you know, guys that could get after. We had a couple of heavy guys and, you know, and, uh, and, you know, guys for whom the commitment to the to the process wasn't as thorough as as some others. Uh, and so but you know, like nowadays, you know, you are you know, you walk, you step onto a college campus in September. You got a stick in your hand the first day. You are training all year round. You know, there's 45 guys on the team, maybe 50 in some of the college programs. Uh, everybody's in shape. Everybody is weight training. You know, uh, you know, those kind of things there are more athletes playing the game the game you know that the best players back in my day would still be the best players now but there are more guys that are good players now that are playing the game and you know the number of athletes playing the game from the, these other areas california texas nevada florida and stuff uh it just made the pool much much deeper and uh you know, so the game itself, uh, you know, it's got, it's had its, you know, it, it's gone through its, uh, through its routines, you know, some invert stuff and, you know, attacking more through the midfielder, attacking behind some 10 man riding or not 10 man riding this and that, uh, those things tend to run in cycles and tend to come and go. Uh, I would say the game is much more athletic than it used to be. It's probably faster in that regard. Uh, and much, and much, just much deeper in terms of the quality of the athletes uh, that are playing. Tom, you recently announced that you'll be the head coach in the PLL this summer. What was it about this opportunity with the PLL that excited you the most? And how do you think it'll be different from your experience coaching in the MLL last season? Yeah, well, the MLL, um, uh, I wasn't when I when they I first began to talk to the to Cannons um, a little over a year ago. Um, you know, they, I had an opportunity to be full-time with the Cannons and really, uh, thinking to myself, it's going to be basically going to be every weekend between, uh, March and about August. Uh, and I just thought that was a little bit too much. And so I, I turned them down at first and then they came back to me and offered me, uh, a reduced schedule of, uh, of what they, what they needed and wanted from me. And, uh, so I thought, okay, I'll try that. They offered me like about a half of a contract, uh, which was actually desirable. And uh, so that worked out and I, I did much more than I anticipated and probably they anticipated, uh, and enjoyed the experience, you know, enjoyed the experience of working with the players at that level and all. Uh, and then when the PLL came around, uh, they're actually playing, uh, fewer regular season games than the MLL. Uh, the MLL has actually expanded their regular season schedule, uh, and so, uh, you know, for me living in Charlottesville, uh, whether I was working with the cannons or whatever else, uh, uh, you know, I, I wanted to try to do it more full time, uh, maybe be the head coach of the team. Uh, but at the same time, for me, every game is an away game. You know, there are no home games here in Charlottesville. I don't live in Boston. So I'm traveling every single weekend. Uh, 
you know, and then I, you know, you, I certainly, everybody noticed that the PLL, it seemed like, uh, you know, most of the best players, the MLL, the best players, you know, you know, were, were at least looking closely at the PLL and, uh, and then uh, the PLL is playing less regular season games. And so it suited my schedule. So, um, you know, uh, the uh, less regular season games, uh, you know, more of the better players involved in this other league, uh, you know, the enthusiasm of the people that have this league uh, going. Uh, and I thought, you know, the first year, this will be a, this will be a great experience. And uh, the, the barnstorming, uh, you know, uh, process that they have in place where we're going to go to different cities every weekend, it's going to be a little different. You know, I'm, I'm certain we're going to bump into each other, you know, in certain areas in the first year. Uh but I'm looking forward to giving it a try. Uh, you know, I can tell you that, you know, working with the MLL last year and, and I think to an, uh, to even a higher level this year with the PLL, uh, working with these elite players, uh, w- was really kind of fun. You know, it was like, it reminded me of the days when we had our, our best teams at Virginia or Brown and, uh, and you had players that understood what you wanted and had enough athletic instinct to be able to, you know, nuance the drills right away and, and, uh, and, and, and do them, may perform at a high level consistently, uh, fun to be involved with those kind of players. And so in a limited way, uh, that's what the MLL was for me and the opportunity here to, to be a head coach and have my own team, uh, on about the same schedule of games that I would have had in a reduced way with the MLL, uh, just made this, this, uh, PLL opportunity, uh, you know, very enticing. Yeah, no, that's great. Do, do you think both leagues will, uh, will survive, I guess, is the question. I sure hope so. You know, I, uh, I think there are a couple of, uh, you know, you have an uh, uh, interesting ownership situation in the MLL. Uh, you, you know, you got a, one owner that controls uh, a number of the franchises and then a couple of the franchises, I think about Boston, Chesapeake, Denver in particular, that are heavily invested in the success of the MLL. Uh, they've got, you know, uh, they're invested in the community. Uh, I think it's, you know, really important for them that the MLL survive, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, the PLL has got this new model, uh, you know, right now I'd say that they have most of the best players committed. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this sort of barnstorming thing goes uh, going from city to city, but I can imagine that, that we would, you know, go to Portland for a game or we'd go to, you know, San Diego for a game, uh, where you're going to have the, you bring in the best lacrosse players in the country, in, with six teams for three games on a weekend that they could draw a really good crowd there, you know, yeah. eight, 10, 12, 15,000 people. Uh, you know, the fact that it's going to be on NBC uh, is exciting. Uh, you know, and then my, my hope is that both leagues survive and, uh, and that at some point, uh, you know, I'm imagining to myself, Hey, if they can learn to play nicely together, that they could put, put together the best of professional lacrosse and, 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 both leagues will wind up in a strengthened position and are able to come together and figure out a way to make professional lacrosse in this country, uh, you know, a viable commodity. That'd be great. I hope it happens. Uh, So over the years, you have seen so many of the best players and teams of all time. I want to ask you some questions about some of the people you consider to be the best ever. So um, who do you consider to be some of the best players of all time at each position uh president company excluded uh <laughs> you know uh just because uh, like i said i have to spend a lot of time talking about you there uh, we might do that <laughs> later on here you know uh 
you know, um, uh, attack wise for me, you know, I think back to someone, you know, a little younger than me, but in my generation, uh, Eamon McEnany, uh, you know, probably one of the, one of the best players, uh, still one of the best players, tough and fast and quick, uh, those Cornell teams in the, in the late seventies, uh, middle to late seventies with some of my, some of my favorite teams, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, more recently, you know, Lyle Thompson and, you know, Rob Pinnell is probably as good an attackman as I've seen in some time. Uh, when you're talking about, you need, you need to talk about players that can do all aspects of the game. They're, they're not just scorers. They're not just uh, passers. Uh, that, that they can do that. That's what makes them particularly dam- dangerous. And uh, it was really fun to watch Lyle Thompson recently. Really fun to watch Rob Pinnell uh, in his recent years. I really enjoy, you know, Jordan Wolf. Uh, you know, the more recent guys, uh, you know, I uh, think of uh, Eamon McEnany. There was a Jack Thomas uh, that played at Hopkins back in my day. Uh, you know, some guys that were really, really uh, fun to watch. Uh, Casey Powell, uh, I tend to put make, you know, Casey, think of him more as a lacrosse player. Uh, and if you ask me to just pick the best lacrosse player, I might pick Casey Powell. Uh, so I think he could be on a list. He might be on my list at either the attack or midfield. Uh, you know, uh, if I was picking a, a team and you asked me to pick the best player I've ever seen, I, I think I'd probably uh, take Gary Gate first and foremost. Uh, you know, just uh, uh, so uniquely skilled and much bigger and stronger. And, and Paul, not very far behind, uh, you know, just was uh, banged up a little bit more, didn't quite have the career that Gary had. Uh, you know, so during the same period of time, actually, uh, uh, John Reese was playing at Yale. Uh, and when I coached the North South game, uh, let's see, that would have been 1990. Actually, my first midfield was John Reese, uh, Gary Gate, and Paul Gate. Uh, so <laughs> I had to work hard not to screw that one up, you know. And, uh, um, you know, uh, so those guys, you know, you think of your midfield, you think of your own career as a midfielder. You know, you win the Tawaritan Award, you're the player of the year in the country. You know, I you probably, I think your best year might have been about 35 or 40 goals, maybe. Uh, uh, John Reese scored 80 goals from the midfield his Incredible. senior year. And, uh, yeah, and he wasn't really a Dodger, you know, uh, just an unbelievably powerful athlete that could catch and shoot and score. Uh, just remarkable, really. Uh, 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 Frank Urso in the midfield. So Urso, you know, Casey Powell, Gate, Gate, Reese in the midfield. Uh you know, uh, you know, I never saw Petro. Uh, I never saw Petro. I never watched Petro as closely as I might have. I'll take everybody's word for the fact that he might be the best defenseman that played the game. Uh, you know, uh, the one that is more vivid in my uh, my memory is uh, Brody Merrill. Uh, I was I thought Brody uh, may have been as good a defenseman as I saw. You know, play the game. Uh, you know, you had Pat McCabe back at uh, Syracuse. Uh, you know, back in those when those in those great Syracuse teams. Uh, so in some of those positions, you know, when I was playing, defensemen hardly crossed the midline, and so you just didn't see the same kind of uh, flow from a defenseman that you'll see nowadays. Guys flying all around the field and all, uh, you know. So and then and, and the goal uh, for me um, uh, to this day still Sal Acasio at UMass. Uh, probably the quickest hands I've still today that I've ever seen. Uh, Larry Quinn was very good. Paul Schumoller at Cornell. Uh, but if I had to win a game, uh, I would I would take Sal in the goal. 
What's one of the most memorable individual performances that you've seen from a player in any given game? Uh, well, one one that I've actually uh, thought about, uh, you know, quite a bit over time uh, was, uh, you know, having involved uh, uh, Virginia and Syracuse uh, in uh, 19, uh, 1997. Uh, we played Syracuse in the Dome and uh, in a game in which we lost 22 to 21. And Casey Powell was seven and six in the game, uh, being covered by a first team All-American defenseman. And, you know, it, if you asked me the single greatest play, I would tell you to go find that game. And somewhere in the second half, there's a sequence where, you know, we pick up the ball in the defensive end. We come down. Uh, Drew Melchione throws it to Mike Watson. He goes behind his back to Drew McKnight, dives across the front of the goal, bangs it off the post. Uh, Casey Powell picks up the ground ball in the box runs up the field, uh, he literally runs by five of our guys, <laughs> five of our guys, and on the dead run, entering the box at the other end, you know, uh, goes behind his back and sticks it in the low corner. Uh, you know, uh, Chris Sanderson in the goal for us, all-world team player, Jal Bear on the field, Hall of Fame, Doug Knight on the field, Hall of Fame, Michael Watson on the field, Hall of Fame, Casey Powell on the field, Hall of Fame, Ryan Powell on the field, Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, uh, it was it was unbelievable lacrosse. And uh, and then Casey's performance that day goes on a very short list for me of, of the finest individual performances I've ever seen. Yeah, that is the most entertaining lacrosse game you could ever see. I've, I've watched it many times. It, it is on YouTube for anybody that wants to go check it out. It's amazing how many people stop me and and tell me that, Jesus, coach, I just watched that game again. You know, and, I don't uh, know how it, Yeah, it's great that it's on there for everybody to watch. It is so good. And yeah, Casey, uh, he's one of a kind. Uh, how about the best team? If you had to pick one team that you would say is this best team ever, who would it be? Well, my, my favorite team, my favorite team was the Cornell teams uh, of the late seventies. You know, they, uh, they win the national championship. The game is at Brown in 1976. I'm actually the host. Um, I'm the host for the Cornell team that weekend. So I had a chance to be around them a lot, uh, watch them, enjoy getting to know those guys. Mike French, Eamon McEnany, Bobby Hendrickson, Craig Jager, Danny Mackesy, uh beat an unbelievable uh, Maryland team in the finals in overtime in 76, undefeated. They won up undefeated again in, in uh, 77 undefeated again in 78, lose in the finals to Johns Hopkins in 78. So they essentially went three years, two national championships, uh, you know, that year. And so that was, I just, and for me, I was just beginning my career in coaching, just starting to watch and appreciate the game. Uh, You know, I'm not sure that anybody was beating that, uh, that 1990 Syracuse team. That had yep. Gate and Gate and Zolberti and and all those guys on it, uh, you know. Uh, and then I, you know, I have to say our our 2006 Virginia team, uh, you know, we had we had one game that we didn't win by at least six goals, uh, you know. And so finished the season undefeated, uh, you know. So you know, um, you know, again the Virginia team obviously a little closer to home for me, but. But uh, but I would have liked to take my chances against uh, the Cornell team in the late 70s or the, the Syracuse team in the 90s. That would have been fun. Huh. 
So the dive makes its return to college lacrosse this season, and you coach the two guys who really created the play in Doug Knight and Michael Watson. Do you remember the first time you saw them dive, and what do you expect the dive to do for the game this season? Well, I think that actually the, the shot clock, I think, uh, is actually going to benefit the defense more than the offense. You know, it, it, you know, for the it may it, it's not so much that it's going to speed up play, but teams are going to get to their offensive patterns quicker. You know, and so for the for the fans in the stands, they're not really going to notice a change in the game. I don't think uh, a great deal, uh, other than the fact that there's going to be. I think they'll just be more lacrosse being played so that'll be that'll be better but I don't think people will notice a dramatic change at the offensive end because I don't even think that the shot clock the the expiration of a shot clock is going to be much of a factor until late in the game but I think at the other end of the field you know defenses uh, are not going to have to survive an extended possession the way that they would have had in the past you know Uh, so for some teams that are a little bit suspect defensively I think it's going to make their lives a little easier. And just in general, I think it favors the defense. Uh, but uh, what I do think is that the dive gives the offense back a little nugget, you know. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you, t- well, you want to just take away the top side, take away that, you know, that Princeton influence in the early 90s, uh, you know, with defensemen playing cross-handed and taking away the top side so dramatically for people. Uh, well, you know, when – in conjunction with having the dive taken out of the game, it made that defensive technique uh, even a little bit more viable. Uh, but now I think if you're going to, you know, you're going to overstep that that top side, these attackmen are now going to be able to get under and dive across. And so it gives the uh, it gives them back a little something. So even against the zone, you know, if, if, he, if the shot clock is going to, people are talking about, well, we're going to see a lot more zone defenses. If that happens to be the case, you know, a lot of teams were comfortable playing his own defense with those shorts on the on the bottom corners on the bases. Uh, I think you, I you know, I think you're going to struggle with that a little bit because these attackmen can now can now dive again. And so, uh, um, um, you know, I I, I think it's going to I think it's going to bring a little bit. Uh, it'll bring some excitement back into the game, I think, and it gives the uh, it gives the uh, offensive players, especially the attackmen, uh, another tool. Uh, in, in, in order to be able to attack the goal, you know, uh, you know, this directional diving that they are still trying to figure out, you know, the angle that guys are going to be required to take for it to be a legal dive. Uh, I think we're going to have to see how that plays out in the regular season. But but at the very least, uh, um, I think it I think it again, I think it gives a tool back to the offensive players in order to be able to put some more pressure on a cage. Do you think those new rules will funnel down to high school and ultimately the youth rules as well? Um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think the uh, shot clock, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, you can't, uh, it really, it'd be tough to use a shot clock or tough to, for a shot clock to be used effectively, uh, tough on the fans, tough on the players, if it's not a visible clock. And so when we're talking about youth lacrosse and youth tournaments and even high school stuff, my concern would have been with the shot clock. And I think it was one of the things that held it back was, you know, uh, you know, the top division one programs can afford to do it right, can put a good clock on the field. But can a division, can a just an emerging division three program afford the same? You know, uh, you know, you're going to who are you going to put at the table that's going to run the clock and do it properly and all. And uh, and so I think that is even amplified to a much greater extent at the high school level and the youth level. And uh, 
So in terms of the shot clock itself, uh, um, I think you'll probably it'll probably be some time before you start seeing it at the youth level. I'm not sure it's necessary really, because um, I think people are just going to start to play a little faster anyway. Yeah, and that that may be all that you really need in the, at the youth level of the game. Uh, but my guess is that at the high school level and at the youth level, uh, you know, you're gonna you're gonna start to see kids dive again. Uh, yeah, a little bit. You know, I think uh, kids, uh, little guys, uh, mimic the mimic the guys they're going to see on television, and uh, and I don't think there's any doubt you're going to see more uh, more more diving in the game now. Yeah, you've often said that lacrosse is all about relationships. As a coach, how do you try to create good relationships on your teams? Uh, well, I think it's uh, I think it's everything that you do. Um, you know, I, I've been around to a lot of programs uh, recently. Uh, uh, down at High Point College a year ago, I was at Ohio State this past fall. Uh, the technological pieces that are now in place for these coaches and these programs—it's just—it's stunning. I've only been out of the game for you know two and a half or three years now, and uh, you know you're watching drones on the practice field. Uh, you know, at, at Ohio State, they were on the football practice field, so there were four or five towers. They all had cameras going. Uh, you know, they, the coaches had iPads on the practice field. They could show guys things in between uh, repetitions of drills. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I, when I spoke to the coaches afterwards, I went out of my way to say, you know, all good, fellas. You know, all these pictures, all these technological advances, all good but to me, you know, we're it's we're still very much in a in a people game. That 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 our best teams, you know, were were talented. But you know, we had a lot of talented teams at Virginia and at Brown. Uh, the the best teams that we had were the teams that trusted each other. You know, that whose personal skills were str- were were the strongest. You know, uh, trusted each other, trusted the staff. Uh, you know, th- those kind of things, and so. What I'm what I'm a little concerned about with some of these young coaches is that are everyone's working their tail off. Uh, I try to tell folks, you know, don't hide behind the technology. You know, we got better pictures, we got better video, we got more complete scouting reports. I just still don't believe that that's the essence of what coaching is about. You know, uh, and so uh, are you making contact with your players on a daily basis? Do you talk to the kid at the end of the bench? Uh, you know. Uh, you know, do you bring your players in to see you? Are you are you reaching out to people? Uh, you know, I still think that uh, yeah, we're, we're very much in a relationship game, and I think it has very much to do with the success of your team. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there's obviously a, a lot of technical things that go into the coaching piece of it. Most of the coaches that I run into when I when I talk, you know, have a have a have a solid handle on the X's and O's. You know. Uh, but I, you know, it's, it's the people that, uh, you know, can reach out and touch the people that they're coaching or touch their teammates or, you know, that I, that I think at the end of the day, those people become your leaders. And, you know, again, the, um, the best teams that I had always had outstanding leadership. That's the constant. And that to me is a, that's a personal exercise, you know, and, uh, and so, uh, and at the end of the day, Athletics, lacrosse, is our vehicle to the relationships between people. You know, uh, we use lacrosse as uh, you and I use it as a way to get to know each other, and it's a way to get to know, you know, AJ Shannon and Billy Gladding and 
and Ned Bowen and, and Brett Hughes. Uh, you know, all of those things. Uh, lacrosse was our tool. Uh, and then when things didn't go well, whether it was on the field or, or in life, you know, you could turn to the people that that uh, you could count on, you know, and, and you, be, you began to build those relationships uh, in the locker room and in the weight room and on the practice field. Man, yeah, that's great. If you had to identify one quality of championship teams that separate them from the rest, what would it be? Um, uh, the... Um, uh, the, 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 you know, I mentioned it a minute ago, the, the, the overall quality of each of the teams that each of the, 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 all the best teams that I, that I had, the most successful teams I ever was involved with all had outstanding leadership. Uh, it can take different forms. Uh, the easiest way, you know, might be for one guy to be the leader. You know, uh, and there can be other captains and other senior leaders. And my the 06 championship team we had here probably had four or five guys at the top that were fully invested in what we were doing and and uh, and provided that kind of leadership. Uh, I you know I talk about you frankly a lot, Chris, when I talk about the 03 team, and I talk about Bray Malfurst with the 11 team, and Tucker Radeball with our 99 championship team, Ryan Tucker with our with our 15 team that wasn't a, uh, wasn't even a championship team. Uh, you know, so that, that outstanding leadership, every good team I had, had it in some form. Uh, and then the, the secret sauce to me that, that held, uh, that allowed the leadership to flourish was again, you know, uh, was an honesty amongst the participants, you know, that you were able to speak to each other. You looked in the mirror, honestly, you spoke to each other in an honest way you dealt with the with the environment, with the coaching staff, and the scouting reports, and the sport of lacrosse in an honest way. And uh, you know that gives you that. Give, you know I talked about it a little bit before that honesty between the participants gives you the ability to trust each other, and uh, and that's when you have a chance to to put together really something really special. So it's the leadership piece overall. I think the glue of it all. Is, is an honesty amongst the participants and the ability to trust each other. Those are the things that I think, uh, you know, make one team, you know, elevate their play um, alongside some others. So we're really just about to begin the 2019 spring season. What advice do you give to coaches trying to create that on their team to create that great chemistry and culture and, and uh, create leadership that you mentioned? What? Well, I think it. I think it is. It's all the all the things that we just talked about. It's. Uh, it is. You know, in terms of lacrosse. I mean, you know, players. Uh, it's not just players. You know, if we were in a band, it would be the same thing. You know, people can can smell in in authenticity. You know, when it walks in the room. You know, uh, so you know, figure out who you are. You know, uh, figure out why you're doing the things. You're. Why is this important to you? You know. Uh, uh, don't be afraid to show your players that you're vulnerable. Uh, you know, there might be a day when, you know, you will ask me, uh, you know, uh, why are we doing this thing on extra man coach? Or what are we going to do on extra man this week? And the truth of it is, I don't know yet, Chris, you know, uh, so I'm, you're not afraid to say that to people, uh, you know, and, and then, uh, and then again, it's, it's, it's reaching out to the different people on the team and, uh, 
and, and, and trying to get to know them and, and what kind of things, uh, what, 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 what issues are happening in their lives, what drives them, you know, how can I, how can I reach out and, and touch somebody? You know, the same goes for the drills. You know, when I'm talking to coaches about drills, uh, you know, you, you, don't, you know, you're not just doing line drills for the sake of doing line drills. You're not just doing fast breaks for the sake of doing, you know, what are you actually trying to accomplish, you know? Uh, and, uh, and so if we, I want to improve their stick work. Okay. Well, then put a, put a ball in their hands, you know, uh, and, and, and start out with that pair passing, you know, you can add a hundred repetitions before you wind up uh, doing anything else in five minutes, you know, by, by doing those kind of things. And, uh, you know, and so, uh, uh, just, you know, you know, figuring out who you are, being your authentic self to people, uh, being respectful of people. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we have an obligation. We also have an obligation to, to be enthusiastic, you know, uh, and, and I'm also a, a big fan of, uh, of being very positive, you know, that there, there's a sense sometimes that when athletes, uh, make the same mistake over and over again, that, uh, you, know, you almost feel like as a, as a coach, you almost feel like, why are you trying to screw me? You know, and, uh, <laughs> and that's not it. You know, kids would prefer to do it right. They would prefer to get it right and do it right. But, uh, you know, you have to understand that everybody processes information differently. And uh, you just got to keep trying to get through to somebody, uh, get through to somebody in, in any number of different ways. Don't lose uh, don't lose the faith uh, as you're doing that. So a positive spirit, I think, in terms of what you're doing. Uh you know, being being honest, uh, talking to people. Uh, you know, being straightforward with uh, with uh, with folks. Uh, uh, you know, I think those are the kind of things that uh, you know you want to bring to the table as you're starting out. How about advice to players? You know, what would you tell a player who is trying to have a great season this year or lead their team to a championship this season? Um, uh, be a, be a good listener. Uh, uh, master the fundamentals. You know, again, I talk to a lot of young players and, uh, I talk to a lot of young players and, you know, I watch guys, you know, throwing the ball around and dropping their hands and flinging the ball side on. And, you know, I, I keep saying, do you want to play? Uh, <laughs> do you want your team to be good? You know, uh, they say, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So here's what you have to do. You've got to learn to pass the ball overhand. You need to learn to you need to learn to throw a ball that catches itself. Basically, you know, uh, you need to shoot. You need to hit the cage. You need to, you know, my my mantra is, which I, you know, probably got from Coach Van Arsdale, is you know, overhand to the side pipes. You know, uh, and get off the top bar. Uh, so do the things that we need to do in order to be successful. Uh, listen to the coaches. Uh, you know, the same thing I was saying to coaches, I would say to players. Uh, you know, uh, bring some enthusiasm to the uh, to the practice field every day. You know, uh, if you ask me about the single quality of of, a, of of good players, you know, there's a certain base requirement for ability and all, uh, but a resiliency, a resilient spirit is what you're looking for as much as anything else. You know, not being afraid to, you know, welcoming the opportunity to get knocked on your fanny in order to be able to get back up and make the next play. Uh, and, uh, you know, being able to being able to deal with a little bit of a little bit of adversity, uh, you know, so if you if your goal is to be a great leader, you know, if I'm talking to a young player and, uh, uh, you know, if your goal is to be a great leader, you know, you can't be a great leader 
uh, of your teammates without getting to all your personal playing goals. I want to be a first. I really want to be a first team All-American. I want to be on the first midfield. I want to. I want to do these. Well, if you if you aspire to be a great leader, to be a great influence on your teammates, uh, you couldn't help but do the things you need to do in order to accomplish those other things at the same time. Your game may look different. Your game, Chris Rotelli, looked different as a senior in college than it did in the three years prior. You know. Uh, but you became a, a much more complete lacrosse player, lifted your teammates, lifted your team, and uh, made all the difference in the world. As a coach at Virginia, you, you put inspirational quotes at the bottom of the practice plans that were posted in the locker room each day. If you had to pick one of your favorite quotes, what would it be? Um, one of my favorite quotes, uh, geez, there are, uh, there are so many, there are so, there are so many of them, uh, you know, uh, it was one by Washington Robles that, uh, you know, character and action are everything, you know, uh, uh, you know, those are the kind of things. I mean, having that have personality and, and, and getting to the work part of it, uh, that, that, that's what's going to make the difference as much as anything else. Uh, you know, you know, Albert Einstein's, uh, um, you know, become a person of value, you know, if that's what you can live your life by that standard, uh, you know, those are the kind of things I think that, uh, that, 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 that set people apart. You know, there was a, there was a Pat Conroy quote, uh, uh, uh he wrote a book called the, my losing season. And, uh, you know, he talked about, uh, how fleeting each moment is and you know, how quickly the time goes and, and, uh, you know, all of those things, you know, I try, um, I try, you know, uh, you, you put that thought for me, putting a thought like that at the bottom of a practice plan gives me a, just gives me a, oftentimes a seed for conversation, you know, uh, uh, so I could, you know, my job was to, uh, I felt like my job. And I would tell you that, frankly, what I miss the most about not being on the practice field every day is feeling like I'm making a meaningful contribution to, to someone's life. And so, you know, some, those sayings, uh, uh, you know, which I always kept nearby, uh, you know, um, uh, gave, gave me, uh, gave me some, gave me some food of thought to, uh, in order to be able to talk to you guys on a daily basis. And, uh, it made, it made all the difference in the world. Many of those, I, I know you, you read in, in books, sports books and, and others. What, what, what's your favorite coaching book that, that, that you found most inspiring that you've read over the years? Um, uh, well, I have, I've read a lot of books. Uh, you know, the, my, my personal, my personal, uh, favorite coaching biography was, uh, a coach's life. There's a story, uh, an autobiography by Dean Smith, the former basketball coach at, at the university of North Carolina. Uh, you know, a guy that was very, uh, uh, um, very socially conscious before it was popular, you know, uh, you know, you know, it, coaching in the South and, uh, and I really liked him. I was I was a big fan of uh, I was a big fan of John Wooden. There was a book. Uh, it was a book uh, by a guy. And his last name was Selleck uh, about court sense. It was again. It was a basketball book uh, that 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 I really enjoyed. Uh, you know, there's a lot of self help books out there now that uh, you know get get prescribed uh, prescribed all the time. And uh, you know, so uh, you know, I, you can find a lot of good things out there, but. Uh, but, uh, you know, a coach's life by Dean Smith, uh, you know, any of the things of, uh, 
about uh, about John Wooden. I think uh, you know uh, I'm looking at I'm looking here at my bookshelf. Uh, Pride still mattered. Uh, Vince Lombardi and uh, and things like that. Uh, you know, a book more recently uh, called Toughness by Jay Billis. I played basketball at Duke. Uh, are all things that I've enjoyed reading. Yeah. If you were commissioner of lacrosse and you could do anything you wanted, what change would you make to help the game right now? Um, I think we made a dramatic, I think the game uh, made a dramatic change in the last couple of years. Uh, my concern uh, is the recruiting. Uh, you know, I actually will take a little, I'll take a little credit for the new recruiting rules that are in place now so that the college coaches don't have contact with uh, with uh, high school students now until the start of their junior year. I think that was a very, very positive development. The college coaches actually, we talked about that, you know, 10 years ago, even though it's only been in practice now for about, for about two years. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, if I was coaching, even just in the short time since I was coaching full-time, you know, I, I really struggle with uh, – uh, you know, players making a commitment to one school and then, you know, switching schools and having, you know, coaches talking people into, uh, you know, changing schools and going out and, you know, I call it poaching or whatever else it's going to be. And, uh, and I would have a really hard time with that. Uh, you know, I, I, it's legal, you know, so I'm careful not to, not to condemn the coaches because of it. Uh, it, it's, it may even be ethical, I just, I don't like it. You know, I don't like the fact that uh, we're sort of encouraging young people to go back on their word, you know? And uh, so you, the fact that the recruiting is later, I'd like to in, in the, just in general, you'd like people to have, be able to have the, be mature enough to make a good decision, have the right amount of time to be able to make that a good decision for themselves. And then, uh, and then stand behind that decision after they make it. And, uh, you know, so the play of the game, uh, you know, um, I, you know, I, I just think there's some great lacrosse out there right now. Uh, you know, uh, you the one of the things I think that has happened on the field is that, uh, you know, you can only barely check the balls out of these sticks these days. Uh, and so that the defense position has really, really changed because checking has really disappeared as an art form in the game. Uh sort of like to see that come back a little bit. You know, I think if the pockets were a little shallower, the, the game might still improve. Guys might be a little bit better passers. Uh, I hear people talk about, you know, nobody can pass. And I say, that's baloney too. You know, uh, <laughs> you know people can pass, but, you know, especially at the highest level. Some young players, their, their pockets are way too deep. You know? <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, uh, but so, you know, you know, that kind of subtle adjustment perhaps, uh, but again, in the recruiting, uh, if there was a way for, you know, uh, for high school students not to feel pressured into having to make decisions before they were absolutely ready to do it, so that when they finally did, they were more set in their in their place, and they didn't have coaches and players feeling pressured into changing schools and changing spots and leaving people hanging. Uh, I think the world would be a little better place. <laughs> Dom, you've been involved with lacrosse for the past 50 years, and it's clear you do it because you love it. What is it about the game that you love so much? Um, uh, for me, it, it's, it, was, it was, you know, well, like I described in the beginning, it was the, it was the game itself that I loved. I, I loved the stick. You know, I loved, uh, you know, I, I grew up, I loved my baseball glove, you know, uh, <laughs> 
And then I discovered a lacrosse stick. And uh, you know, I played with a wood handle way longer until I got too lazy to have to really take care of a wood handle the way you needed to. Uh, you know, I might still be using one if I, if I, if I had more time to do it. Uh, I just love the feel of that wood handle. Uh, you know, for me, the, the, uh, the native American roots of the game, you know, touched me in a way that, uh, you know, it's hard to describe. Uh, and I, I believe, uh, I believe that there's a spirituality about the sport that maybe has to do with the stick and maybe has to do with the native American roots of the game. Uh, that is, I find very appealing and I think is very real, you know, uh, uh, and then again, you know, even though the game has grown, there's a sense of community in our sport that I don't take for granted. And I don't think I see it in other sports. You know, uh, you, you get to Lake Placid in the summertime and you, know, you see the guys playing that are 65 and 70 years old down to, down to the youth tournaments and stuff. Uh, there's a, there's a certain collegiality about our sport that I don't see otherwise. Some of it has to do with the fact that, you know, not a lot of people are still playing it for the money. You know, uh, I think even people going to college are essentially have the same things in mind that they had 25 years ago. I'm going to get into a little better college than I would have otherwise. I might get some financial help, but I better graduate with the tools I need to go on with the rest of my life. Uh, because I'm not, you know, I'm not quite ready to be given, uh, you know, given up uh, my day job for lacrosse yet, you know, uh, you know, so all, all of those things, uh, all of those things, I think, are the things that uh, have always, had, you know, had a special attraction for me with the sport. Well, coach, that is a, it's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking with you. Chris, my pleasure. Always great to catch up and, uh, and I look forward to, to us uh, catching up somewhere down the road here.